your Bible with. If you did, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you didn't, you should find one under a pew chair near you. I encourage you to uh, avail yourself of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you looked up front, you would notice that we are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. And indeed, we are. You may think everybody agrees of what it means, how to celebrate or any of those kinds of things. The answer is you would be wrong. Uh, the Lord's Supper is seen very differently by various groups of Christians. Uh, I believe there is a correct and proper biblical way to look at it. We'll look at some of those others uh, very quickly, and then we'll look at the final way, which I believe is the biblical way, and we'll actually start in that direction. You may or may not know that the Lord's Supper was originally, before it was the Lord's Supper, it was the Last Supper. And before it was the Last Supper, it was the Passover. See, because because Jesus Christ, Christ, in celebrating what was going to happen, and that's what the Passover did, it celebrated the work that Christ would do by sacrificing a lamb, a real sheep. Jesus Christ, the night he was betrayed, when he celebrated the Passover with his disciples, he said, hey folks, and I'm paraphrasing all this, I am now going to be the one that's the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God. I am going to shed my blood once for all. In the past, lambs were shed on an ongoing basis that never could forgive sin. He said, this is what I'm going to do. And then the Apostle Paul, in the passage that you have just turned to, says, here's what we do in the church. Here's how to operate in the church. In fact, is when you look at this, you will find out that what they were doing was not the Lord's Supper. And that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. So when you get together, you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. You're doing something completely wrong. And what they were doing and his, uh, what he was addressing at the moment was of how they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. In fact, is if you know this, the Lord's Supper means an evening meal. Once a year, at least, here at Garden Chapel, we have an evening meal together and serve the Lord's Supper afterwards. That's much more accurately and much more biblical than what we do on a Sunday morning. But what they were doing is, in the Corinthian church, and they had problems in every area you can think of, is some people were going home hungry and others were going home sloshed. They were drunk when they went home. And he said, that's not the Lord's Supper, that's not what it's about, and that's not how you do it. But then he went on to explain to them what it meant. And if you would follow with me in verses uh, 24, 25, 26, and 28, you will see this is what it meant. In verse 25, he said when he had given thanks, he broke it, that is, the bread that they had. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's what you see on the screen behind me. What was it? It was a memorial remembrance, a memorial. It was a God-given spiritual object lesson. He goes on to say the exact same thing about the cup. He says, whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And then he goes on to say, it's not only looking back at the perfect finished work of Christ, but it's also looking ahead 
at something else. If you would follow with me, if you would, please, in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so it's something that looks ahead and proclaims the direction we are going. It is an anticipation of Christ coming back based on his death. No one will look and be encouraged to look for and anticipate Christ coming back if they have not first participated in the death of Christ because your sins are not forgiven and you have to answer to God. Only sin can be forgiven by the death of Jesus Christ and his shed blood. But if you would follow also in verse 28, he says, and here is a prerequisite for everyone who participates in the Lord's Supper. He He said, said, but but let a man examine himself. himself. And And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 27 says, in a worthy manner, and there it says, an unworthy manner. Because if we're treating it as lightly, as less than God sees it, we are not looking at the death of Christ, which we celebrate as something that's real in our life, and we're not living it out. Truth of the matter is, on the Sunday morning when people or whenever they celebrate the Lord's Supper, a lot of hypocrites. Because we're proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. He's forgiven my sin. I have a new life. I am remembering what he's done for me. And at the same time, unconfessed sin continues on in life. He says, if you do that and you don't examine yourself and you don't deal with it, you're eating and drinking judgment onto yourself. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning. That's not my purpose this morning. But if you follow through, you will find out that it says a number are weak, a number are sick, and a number have died because. Why? God said you're being a hypocrite. You're saying you proclaim my death, you're proclaiming your sins are forgiven, and you're living for the Lord, and you're not. He says, and there is a judgment that comes with that. That's a stern warning. Nobody at Garden Chapel is going to look over your shoulder and say, you know what, you're living in sin, don't take communion this morning. Don't participate in the Lord's Supper. But it's a personal thing. It says you need to examine your life. I hope while we're talking about this, if you know there's something in your life that is unforgiven sin, you've done something and you haven't confessed it to God, you need to deal with that. If it's something that uh, you need to go to somebody else, Absolutely making the plans that when you leave here, you're going to get that taken care of. Because if you don't, you're eating and drinking judgment unto yourself. That's what the scripture says. Now, all churches that practice the Lord's Supper have a few things in common. And then we're going to look at the differences. First of all, all of them believe it draws our attention to the work of Christ. Uh, No problem. Some of them believe that it's the main thing, it's the most important thing the church could do. Some believe it's a sacrament. A sacrament, by the way, is something that appropriates to us the merits of Christ. It's a means of grace. And when you go through the ritual, it makes you holier, more sanctified. Nothing on the outside can do that. Only the Word of God, only the conviction of the Holy Spirit can do those kinds of things. Nothing in the material world can do that. It is not a sacrament, even though most churches teach that it is. Uh, Many teach that you need to participate in it to stay saved or to get saved. Um, 
And a lot of people uh, look at it and uh, like they do funerals, some will say, oh, it's a celebration, and others will say it's a time of grieving. Well, both are true. The Lord's Supper is the same way. It's a time of thanksgiving for the forgiveness that we have in Christ and the work of Christ in our lives, but it's also a time of sorrow if you need to deal with sin. And then it's the time of celebration. Some people believe, and we're going to look at this, some people believe it literally you are eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus Christ when you participate in communion. Others say it's a mystery, nobody can explain it. Some say it brings Christ to us. Uh, and some say that it's a symbol of a remembrance or a memorial. So with that in mind, and just so nobody goes out of here with the wrong idea, uh, anything that I say, you go, well, you're picking on somebody else and you're trying to put them down. The answer is no, I'm just telling you what they say. You can go home, click on your computer, look any of these things up, you'll find them. Uh, every church has these. These are just what I'm giving you is quotes from them themselves. So let's go from there. By the way, one of the most famous paintings in all the world, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, The Lord's Supper, the, I'm sorry, The Last Supper. Uh, it is not a very accurate depiction of the Lord's Supper, I'm going to tell you. They actually reclined at the table. They kind of lay, half laying there like the Romans did. But anyway, it tells us and reminds people of the significance of Jesus Christ in that. Let's look first, and uh, we're going to look at the Roman Catholic Church first. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that people are literally eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus Christ under the appearance of bread and wine. They... Take literally what Christ meant to be used figuratively. This is my body, this is my blood, and they say, see, it must be the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so they say that when you eat and drink, you're eating and drinking the literal body and blood of Christ. They call that transubstantiation. You don't need to know that word, but it's a whole concept that it is literal, that it is the offering of the same sacrifice to God as on the cross, but in an unbloody manner. They literally, as, as I said a few weeks ago, the Mormon church has a living prophet. They have a continuing sacrifice. We'll talk about this sometime later in a, in a different sermon. But they believe they are literally, every time they celebrate the Lord's Supper, are participating in the very same sacrifice that happened on the cross. The Word of God is very clear on this one. There's no way to get around it. In Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 10, it says this, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. It's not something that can be repeated. In fact, as he goes back and says, here's the repeated part, it's part of the past. Verse 11 of Hebrews 10 says, And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Very different than a continuing sacrifice. The Word of God is very clear. Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, offered His life one time and only one time, and then He sat down. He said, the priests in the Old Testament, they never sat down. No, no seats in the, in the tabernacle, in the temple, because they were always working. They were always offering sacrifices. 
Jesus Christ, when he was done, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. It was a finished work. He said it on the cross. It is finished. And the Word of God confirms that in other places, for example, here. He is seated at the right hand of God. That's why you won't find a crucifix at Garden Chapel. You see, a crucifix is a cross with Jesus still hanging on it. The sacrifice is ongoing. That is not biblical. It's not true. The cross is empty. The grave is empty. But the throne at the right hand of God the Father is occupied. That's different. It is why, uh, and they also believe, because uh, how does the bread and, and the wine become the body and blood of Christ? They believe, literally, and this is a picture of one of the popes doing that. They literally believe that the priest has been given the power to transform a wafer, a host, into the literal body and blood of Christ. I, that sounds wild to you. Just go look up any Catholic catechism and you'll find out what I'm telling you is exactly what's taught. And then, what do they do with the extra ones? It's been turned into the body and blood of Christ. What do they do with them? They have in the front of, of every Catholic church a tabernacle. It is a place where the consecrated, and that's the word, right word here, consecrated hosts are stored until the next time they have the Lord's Supper. That's why when Catholics come into their church, they genuflect before they sit down. Why? Because they believe they are literally coming into the presence of Christ. The truth of the matter is, the sacrifice is once for done, and guess what? We are not coming into the presence of Christ when you come inside these four walls. If you're a Christian, God is present in you. God the Father, God the Son, and very specifically, God the Holy Spirit has taken up a permanent residence in you. If you have trusted Christ, you are born again, you're saved. God the Holy Spirit dwells in you at all times. Now, I understand. That's personal. I also know the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit indwells the church as a whole. But those things don't happen when you come inside four walls. They are true all the time. We need to understand that. So, um, they also believe that it's a sacrament, that it's absolutely necessary for you to grow and, and become strong as a Christian. I don't believe that is the biblical uh, approach to it. The Lutheran Church teaches that Christ is mysteriously, but truly present in His glorified body in the elements. There's, There's another, another big word, word you don't need to memor, uh, memorize or know. Consubstantiation simply means this. Christ's real or true presence is in the elements, the, the bread and the wine, uh, in a figurative way. Christ is present in, with, and under the elements. Very little difference between the first, this one and the first one. Very little difference between them. But they say, well, we really don't know exactly how it is. So it's, it's a mystery. Nobody really knows. Well, the word we, everything that I just said um, will apply here also. That it is not that. The Bible is very clear that it's a memorial. It's a remembrance. It's something that brings to remembrance, brings to mind. It is not the presence of Jesus Christ. In that. The Episcopal Church teaches that it's a means of having Christ's presence with the people. 
Uh, it is uh, to them an outward way, and I'll just read what they say. It is the way by which the sacrifice of Christ is made present and in which he unites us to his one offering of himself. That is not true. What the Word of God says is the Holy Spirit is the one that takes the Word of God, the gospel, and makes it real in our lives, and we respond to that. That's what makes Christ present and real in our lives. This is a reminder. It is not the substance. The substance is by faith, not by a ritual. I'm not anti-ritual. We practice baptism, but baptism doesn't save you. We practice the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper isn't what brings Christ here. But it surely should remind us of what he has done. It should remind us not only of what he has done in the past, but what should be true now, proclaiming his death till he comes, and it should remind us to examine our lives. But again, it's taking it further than the Word of God will allow. The Reform of the Presbyterian Church teaches that the benefits of Christ are received by the people. <clears throat> Excuse me. They believe that Christ is virtually present. By the way, that was long before digital age. It's sort of like he's almost present, almost entirely present, but it's a slight bit different. But again, it's the same principle that we started out with. If, you, if you're following along, it's the same principle. It keeps coming back. The sacrament becomes the instrument of conveying the actual effects and virtues of Christ's sacrifice to the worthy receiver. So it is something, again, an, a conveying of grace or a, a means of grace, a sacrament, where when you take it, it does something spiritual for you. No. Anything that's spiritual in your life comes because of the work of God in your life by faith. It is not something that happens in the physical world. It's spiritual. And it always has been, and it always will be. And uh, the effects uh, are because I am living in obedience to the Word of God and to what Christ has said. The Methodist Church teaches that people partake of Christ's body and blood by faith. Now that almost sounds like, well, that, that sounds like you just what you just explained, but it is very different than that. Because they say it is Christ, God's invisible working in us to quicken, that means to make alive, to revive or stimulate, strengthen and confirm our faith. The truth of the matter is, nothing physical can do that. Nothing physical can do that. It's simply this, that it is an act of faith, and it's not faith that this ritual will do that for you. Whether you ever had communion or not, you should be growing spiritually, be made alive, revived, and stimulated. You should be strengthened and confirmed. But it's not because of this. The help that comes from this is the reminders and the examination and the confession of sin. Those are all acts of faith, but not the ritual itself. Then there's the Brethren and Mennonite background. They teach, uh, in essence, and there's slight variations of this, that it's an ordinance. By the way, that I underlined that because that's correct. 
It is an ordinance, a law given to the church to carry out. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear. Uh, Jesus said that they were to follow after what he had instituted. Uh, and so I agree with that part. But they make it part of a larger ritual. Now, I'm not going to tell you the larger part of that is all wrong. I'm just going to tell you I don't believe that's the emphasis. And it's not necessary. They would teach that it's necessary. But that may include feet washing, love feast, uh, Christian salutation of a holy kiss, and women with their head covered. And uh, a lot of brethren in Mennonite churches, uh, my wife came from one of uh, a brethren church. And uh, when I first met her... Uh, when, when she went, went to church, she wore a, a covering. covering. Then after, after a while, it got put on the back seat of the, 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 the car. And then after a while, only when she went to Love Feast, and then it got taken back off again. The point is, it, it, nowhere does it say that in the Bible. Um, there's nothing wrong with greeting one another with a holy kiss. The Bible tells us to do that. Love Feast is simply a, a very good illustration of what the Lord's Supper means in that it was an evening meal. And that's what they would do, have an evening meal, and then they would uh, wash each other's feet and uh, have a meal and then wash each other's feet and then have communion. Where do they get the feet washing from? As with every other thing that says, this is my body, uh, they get it from somewhere in the Bible. This comes from John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, uh, it is the account of Jesus at the Last Supper. And, and it, it says, says that, that um, Jesus did what a servant or a slave would normally do for his disciples. It says in verse 10 of John chapter 13, um, well, I actually start at verse 9. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. You see, one of the people present there that night was Judas Iscariot. He was, and going to be very shortly, indwelt by Satan himself. And he was going to go out and portray a betray Jesus Christ. And uh, so he said, one of you isn't clean, but the rest of you are clean. Why? Because they had been washed all over. They had been born again. They had a new life. So you don't need to get a new life again, because if you have spiritual life, you have it. But what you might need is to wash your feet. This is where the examination part comes in. And Jesus was teaching them servanthood and a few other things. But here's what would happen in those days. If you wanted to go visit someone, you would do what we do today. You take a bath so that you smell good and don't smell bad. But then you would go, and there was no concrete sidewalks in macadam. You would walk on a dirt road. By the time you got there, and you wore sandals, by the time you got there, your feet were totally covered with dirt. And so what would happen when you come into the house, they would, someone would wash your feet, usually a slave or a servant, someone like that. And Jesus is making it clear that he wanted them to be servants, no doubt about that. But he was saying, if you already have a bath, you don't need to go and get another bath. You simply need to wash your feet. That's the examination part. Because even though you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you know the temptations and the pulls of the world and your old nature, and you know that your attitudes, your words, your actions are sometimes sinful. They need to be dealt with. You need to examine your life 
And the feet washing simply illustrates that even though you're a Christian, you've been bathed, you have new life, you still need to confess sin. The scripture makes it clear that we are to examine ourselves. Okay, there are more slides. I'm not sure what's happening, Russ, but uh, they don't seem to be flipping there. Okay, so what does the Bible say? The Bible says, and now we're back. Okay, we're, what does the Bible say? And now we're back to the Lord's Supper. So go back to um, the, the passage we looked at earlier. Just repeating pretty much what I've talked about before. Many churches, including Garden Chapel, say that it is a regulation, a law and ordinance given to the church. It is a God-given ritual. No doubt about it. But what it doesn't do, it is not the bodily presence of Jesus Christ. It is truly bread, matzah, and grape juice. That's what it is. You see, if I said to you, those... These are my grandchildren. You'd go, oh, you got nine of them? The answer is, yes, we do. And when they're all in the house, it's chaos. But you know what? Those are not my grandkids up there, folks. My grandkids are living and breathing. They are not a picture behind me. But they sure do represent my grandkids. That's what Jesus was saying. So let's go back. He said, he took bread. This is my body, which is for you. For you, Do this in remembrance of me. It's an object lesson. He was alive and well when he did that with his disciples. And he said, I want this to be a symbol. I want this to be something that's a reminder. And so he used two very common elements that were present at every meal in Israel. Bread and wine, grape juice. He, he took, took them and said, here are your object lessons given by me so you never forget. So you will be reminded on an ongoing basis. And that's exactly what he was doing. He said, that's true of my body. And that is, I mean, of the bread, which represents my body. It's also true of the cup, which represents my blood. Of the new covenant, which is in you. It could not be physical because he was alive and well in their presence bodily when he instituted. So it cannot be. It needs to be taken for what it says. And that is, it's a symbol. And then he says, as often as you eat this, he doesn't say, here's how often the church needs to do this. But he said, as often as you do it. So it's something that's going to be repeated. He said, you proclaim or you announce. The Lord's death until he comes. Do you realize that not only is it a remembrance from the past, but you are announcing to anyone else that sees you today, if you partake in the Lord's Supper, that you believe in the Lord's death. You believe he died for your sins. And you are proclaiming that this is valid, not only in your life, but for the world. When you take this to its fullest extent, you're saying it reminds us we need to be mission-minded. We need to be evangelistic. We need to be reaching out, proclaiming the truth of the work of Christ on the cross, his death for our sins, his shed blood for our sins. But that last one, but let a man examine 
test or prove himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The word literally could be translated, sift yourselves. Now, I'm not a baker, I never have been, but I understand that years ago, flour came with lumps in it. That, with miracles of technology and all that, I don't think there's many lumps in flour anymore, so sifters have kind of gone by the wayside. Maybe some of you still use them, I don't know. But that's what it's talking about. It's sift your life. Make sure there are no lumps of sin in your life. Because if you don't, then you're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. You're kind of thumbing your, no, thumbing your nose at what God is saying. You're kind of treating it lightly. You're treating it as common, ordinary. And he says, no, 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 no. While it's not my bodily presence here, in any way, shape, or form, mysteriously or otherwise, it's still a reminder that you need to have a life that is matches what you say. If you believe and you've trusted in the death of Jesus Christ for your sins, the resurrection simply proves it was true and all the rest of it. But if you're trusting in that, then you should live a life that mirrors that. And if you don't, God says you're a hypocrite. He says you're using it in an unworthy manner. You're proclaiming one thing publicly, but yet in reality, it's not true. I'm going to end with this because we're out of time, but here's what it comes down to. Nobody's going to look over your shoulder. Guys, if you would uh, gather, uh, please, the, the men who are serving the Lord's Supper. If you...